environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is Ecocast. Hello, and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Gall. Today's guest is Kristen J. Jacobson. Kristen is a professor of American Literature, American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey. She completed her PhD at Penn State, her MA at the University of Colorado Boulder and her BA at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. In 2018, she was a Fulbright Scholar at Aristotle University in Thessaloniki, Greece, and in 2019, a Fulbright Specialist at the International University of Kyrgyzstan. Her recent book, The American Adrenaline Narrative, considers perilous outdoor adventure tales, their gendered biases, and how they simultaneously promote and hinder ecological sustainability. Welcome, Kristin, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. Kristin's book defines adrenaline narratives as, quote, perilous outdoor adventure tales. And so today's root word is adventure. Adventure comes from the Latin venir, meaning to come, which is, of course, the same root as the French word for future, the avenir, literally the to come. So the earliest recorded uses of the word adventure in the 11th century had to do with notions of destiny or fate, with chance, accident, fortune or luck. By the 12th century, the word began to be explicitly associated with the adventurous activity of knights, and the word adventure in fact became shorthand for adventure story, for a story dealing with the exploits of brave knights. And so it appears that for a very long time, the notion of adventure has been bound up with its narratability. Nowadays, we might speak of what people call type two fun, when something is particularly challenging or unpleasant at the time, but later makes for an excellent story. And so I wonder whether the drive towards adventure or to adrenaline producing activities might be understood, at least in part, as a symptom of the human predilection for storytelling. So, with that in mind, Kristin, can you give our listeners a brief overview of your book and explain what you're trying to do with this term, the adrenaline narrative? Oh, sure. Thank you. That was a lovely um, exploration of the term adventure. Thank you. Uh, So fundamentally, the adrenaline narrative is a story, as you were saying, about perilous outdoor adventure. And my book specifically looks at contemporary American adrenaline narratives. And so while in many ways, of course, the adventure and adrenaline, uh, you know, it's, it's a global phenomenon. But I'm particularly interested in its contemporary American aspects and uh, incarnations. So um, by this, I mean how the adrenaline narratives appeal and resonance today relate to foundational American myths that define America's relationship to wilderness and shape uh, the adventurer's identity. So uh, an author I'd like to like use to help me 
think about uh, how I'm defining the adrenaline narrative is uh, the a book North to the Night. And the author describes authentic adventure as having three qualities, solitude, deprivation, and danger. And so this deep concern with both authenticity and then the emphasis on solitude, deprivation, and danger, I think, connects to this arguably American kind of Thoreauian tradition. So I focus particularly on post-1970 narratives by and about Americans writing or doing these extreme adventures in sports. And so in doing so, I really hope my book accomplishes two two goals. Uh, One is to define the genre, which I think fills a gap in the literary and cultural criticism. I think that adrenaline narratives have been largely under-theorized and under-examined. And then second is to explain what these narratives tell us about contemporary American culture, especially in terms of what Lawrence Buell uh, calls the American environmental imagination. So adrenaline narratives over the past 50 years or so now uh, offer important insights into how contemporary American culture understands uh, gender, race, class, and the environment. And so the the book has six chapters. The first overviews the adrenaline narrative broadly. And then I look at or outline the, the five what I call desiring natures or approaches to nature that adrenaline narratives engage. And so those five desiring natures are conquering, spiritual, erotic, risky, and restorative. Can I just I just wanted to um to to come back just to this kind of notion of 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 the the fact that it's American just to kind of be clear on that. So you're kind of saying that, mm-hmm. you know, ad, uh, adventure stories or adrenaline narratives are global, but that there's something um, particular about the American identity that kind of that 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 takes this narrative and and uses it to build the American identity. If I got that right, yes, and I think it's particularly resonant in contemporary culture today. And uh, and I think that there are aspects, you know, um, the exploration and adventure, particularly in an imperial or colonial context, right, is one way to think about the way in which the adrenaline narrative has historically been a very global narrative. And the way in which then this resonates particularly with American identity, uh, especially in regard to the frontier and wilderness and exploration, westward expansion in an American identity is what I'm interested. How do those how does that mythology, which very much is connected to the American dream and American identity, still resonate today uh, when, you know, the frontier has been closed for a long time? Uh, and, and how do we reconcile this as uh, American identity has to grapple with its own colonial uh, uh, uh its own colonial, I guess, it, uh, consequences in the contemporary uh, period. Yeah, and as I said, I, I was going to ask a very similar question as, as Gemma's, because uh, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I'm fascinated by is that kind of mythology. The you know, looking looking back, right? Because you're looking at these kind of stories from the past fifty years, but when you even when you go further back into history, I mean, thinking about who we've mythologized as our quote unquote heroes in this country is this very kind of rugged individualist, you know, standing, right. You, you say, I mean, you just said 
uh, solitude is one of the kind of three key pieces. And so it's, I'm not looking for help. I'm doing this on my own. I'm striking out on this adventure. Um, right. And, and there's something, um, right. And even that kind of deprivation of it that I have to, I have to suffer through this thing on my own. And, and so, um, that's, that's, that, yeah, that, that kind of really, really struck me as this, this kind of, you know, as you're talking about mythology and, and really thinking back to, who we mythologize and create as our, our quote unquote heroes uh, in, in this country and, and who's, who's not. Yeah. Yeah. I think it resonates too. You know, I, I wasn't writing this book during the pandemic, but it came out, it was, you know, published during the pandemic. And I think that some of these, you know, on a smaller scale, but in many ways, the risk, you know, we've all kind of become extreme adventurers uh, <laughs> in the way that it, it seems like a big expedition to leave your house, right? And uh, and whether or not you wear a mask, I think sometimes that rhetoric, that narrative that's developed around it outside of the scientific narrative, right? But the social narrative, the political mm-hmm. narrative, I think draws on or shows us the different interpretations of that kind of heroic character and what strength means. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even then bringing this back to this, this uh, obviously the, the uh, kind of larger connections to our podcast is, is also thinking about, you know, the idea of, of a, a climate denier in some ways mm-hmm. is, you know, they're, they're striking out on their own and they're, they're becoming that outlier that, that, um, you know, doesn't stick to the status quo. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, about the environmental questions, about how these kinds of narratives um, shape relations with the environment? Yeah, so I think as we've been talking about, you know, key to answering this question is this uh, recognition of how pervasive adrenaline narratives are within contemporary American culture. So, you know, we have extreme sports, extreme makeovers, a vast array of extreme products, right? You can buy extreme gum, uh, beverages, laundry detergent, right? So, and, and these products and that sort of notion of extreme culture ties into the ratings and popularity of TV shows. And again, I think this is a global phenomenon, but it's, it's also particularly American, uh, or it's particularly popular in America. So like Survivor or Out of the Wild, uh, Man, Woman, Wild, Naked and Afraid, maybe you've seen, uh, or you could name some others uh, as well. So these examples begin to suggest how contemporary American adrenaline narratives are found in just a range of media outlets, Adverti- you know, from advertising, social media, film, television, and then what I primarily focus on are the short and long or long form nonfiction. So it's pervasive. And in this way, it both reflects and I think shapes the American uh, environmental imagination. So those five desires that I mentioned earlier structure the contemporary American environmental imagination. Uh, In other words, they're more than isolated or metaphoric or just personified representations of nature. I'm arguing that they form a coherent system that influences our sustainable and unsustainable behaviors. So let me just sort of briefly outline like the basic differences between these five rhetorics, because that's important for thinking about how they shape and reflect the American environmental imagination. So conquering desire seeks to control nature, 
spiritual constructions often rely on transcendental religious or spiritual discourses to express connections with nature and its transformative potential and effects. So these first two de desires objectify nature uh, in, some, in some fashion. Erotic you, desire. While, while you're doing oh, this, can you give like a couple mm. of examples of the kind of narratives that would fit into these these things? Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, North to the Night, which is the uh, 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 adrenaline narrative that I mentioned earlier, that would be it's largely a spiritual journey. Uh, Maybe something too, if I think is something that's more, uh, might resonate more, that's more popular in American culture. I think uh, Cheryl Strayed's novel Wild, in terms of her personal transformation, she goes out into nature in order to heal herself, right? That's a mm. spiritual, that's the kind of narrative that's more of a spiritual mm -hmm. construction. Uh, conquering desire. And of course, you know, one of the things I talk about is I separate out these five desires, but they're also a, uh, you know, they blend in narratives. And mm -hmm. so uh, conquering uh, that control, a lot of times that's uh, the kind of narrative that's about the successful conquering uh, or achievement of a particular goal. So like the, the narrative by the first American woman to climb Everest follows that uh, vein as well as the spiritual desire because she's also doing this as a kind of healing process. Mm -hmm. uh, with the, um, the with the conquering conquering um, desire, do you do you kind of see that also as um, as a kind of self conquering, where you know often in these kind of very challenging physical situations, there's a need to really you know grit your teeth and and get through the pain. Um, does does that fit into your conception at all? Yeah, and I think that's a, a way in which often the conquering and the spiritual combines. Uh, in the sense that in, in achieving a particular goal in nature, that's how the adventurer also then comes, often comes to a certain kind of self-realization in, in that spiritual sense. Uh, but I think it's also important, you know, like there's the failed narratives uh, and probably most famously Into the Wild or Into Thin Air, those two uh, John Krakauer books are probably great examples of, you know, the way in which conquering desire also seems to be changing uh, for the what constitutes or that it's no longer so easy to to simply sort of unproblematically conquer nature, particularly in the context of the climate crisis mm -hmm. and with an understanding or an increasing understanding of the, the colonial implications of, uh, of a kind of conquering desire, especially when these adventures uh, are taking place, you know, or like in the example of the, the, the Sherpa orphan that concludes part of, uh, that Krakauer includes, includes at the end of Into Thin Air. So, I, yeah, I think that there is that element of conquering yourself uh, that also connects then with the, the spiritual transformation that nature provides. In both cases, nature is sort of this thing out of which the adventurer can extract something from. 
extract prestige, extract, you know, the uh, fame in some cases, right, for doing this uh, incredible feat, uh, or extract uh, something that transforms themselves, but maybe doesn't necessarily, or the, the narrative isn't focused on the impact on the environment that their adventure uh, uh, produces. So, for some, then, this, uh, the third desire that I talk about, erotic desire, it is a mutual desire as opposed to this objectifying desire. And so an example of that would be Sherry Simpson's The Accidental Explorer, Wayfinding in Alaska. And what's interesting about uh, Sherry uh, Simpson's narrative is that it instead of moving, and she even calls it something like marshalling through, right, one point to another in this linear narrative of achieving the goal of exploration, she uses this, uh, she uses this concept of wayfinding, where it becomes much more circular, and that her relationship is not one of, the way that she's presenting exploration is much more, or less linear, I guess, uh, and with multiple points of what we would probably otherwise call like the peak or the, the, the goal of the adventurer. And so instead of having it sort of be that very traditional linear narrative uh, of moving to that climax and then... Uh, the 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 resolution, uh, which is either tragic or triumphant, she um, structures her narrative so that it disrupts that uh, that linear narrative flow, and so that's one way in terms of how she is structuring adventure to think about it differently, and then the other way is the way in which the writers talk about playing with nature or dancing with nature as the nature here is another force in which uh, they're interacting with. And then of course, risk, uh, which is the fourth desire pervades all, all of these three and it pervades every, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that primal fear or awe in the wild, as well as I would say that like defining edge that separates adrenaline narratives from less extreme sports and nature writing and activities. And then the, so, you know, Risk is something that pervades, you know, it, it just simply, it, in many ways, if I had to pick one of these that defines the adrenaline narrative, one of the ways in which I, I looked, although I look at high and low octane uh, adrenaline narratives, uh, risk is really what uh, defines for me the difference between what might be otherwise nature writing or sports writing uh, and uh, the adrenaline narrative. And then the last desire, which I think is still maybe more emerging than uh, uh, as common or popular, but it's, uh, I call it restorative desire, and it builds from characteristics found in both restoration ecology and restorative justice. And right now, I'd say I see most of this happening in like social media spaces and in some short film and media. Those are the majority of the examples that I draw from uh, in the book. So I use these. So one way in which the adrenaline narrative reflects the 
uh, environment, uh, our current environmental imagination is through these five desires. And then I'm also interested in how these, uh, uh, what I would call like the identity politics of extreme adventure. And so how the narrative both shapes the adventurers and readers relationship to the environment and sustainability. So Many readers and adventurers may already be environmentalists, and so I'm interested in how well the adrenaline narrative aligns with environmental principles. And as you noted in the introduction, I conclude that it's a mixed bag. (laughs) And I use Jane Jacobs' term schizophrenic to describe the adrenaline narrative's contradictory environmental messages. And I can... Uh, talk a bit more about the identity politics. Would that be helpful? What I kind of mean by that? Yeah, because I was I was actually, um, as you said that one of the things, um, you know, that that the way that your work here um, kind of positions itself as a, at least kind of partially uh, eco feminist, <laughs> and so I think maybe thinking too about, um, you know, how that's that's functioning as part of this this um, identity politics aspect or identity political aspect, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as probably no surprise, the primary authors and participants in Extreme Adventure still tend to be white, heterosexual, able-bodied males. Class is a little bit trickier to classify because there's kind of like this dirtbag a uh, kind of like starving artist, we might say, uh, that's embraced by many adventurers. Uh, and so I look at perspectives or narratives of those who both kind of fall in and outside of this majority. And so I think that that intersectional attention to identity and its impact, both in terms of how the adventurers relate to nature and to how, you know, the kind of expectations that readers, or we might say American culture broadly, will put on on adventures to fit a particular narrative is related to those identity politics and I think the concerns of feminism and ecofeminism as well. Uh, I, I try and draw from some, you know, my, I should say my my study doesn't do its own reader response criticism. So I don't measure these kinds of responses in any direct way, but I do make some inferences uh, based on what others have studied in regard to reading, especially long form narrative and its capacity to increase empathy. And then also that body of research that focuses on why representation matters and how an experience in nature can actually impact your uh, your support of various sort of environmental or sustainability measures. Uh, and so the body of research right now says that if you go outdoors, right, you're more likely to support environmental measures. And so mm-hmm. that kind of goes back to the push to increase diversity in the outdoors uh, to assure that, particularly in uh, the United States, where uh, the population is is changing and the demographics of that population is changing it's important that the outdoors then you know in terms of from an environmental perspective uh, are a priority for everyone uh, especially when the majority of Americans now live more in urban and suburban environments and not so much in uh, rural environments um I wonder whether I can get you to go back a little bit to the 
to the issue of of class because um, although there might be a bit of a dirtbag aesthetic, as you put it, it, it seems to me that, um, well, one, a certain level of uh, adventure is comes with a huge price tag. For example, to climb Everest is tremendously expensive. It's a very uh, select group of people who are able to do that. But also just more in general, isn't there something about the fact that if you are in a position to go seeking for risk, then probably your probably your life is very safe and that you have a certain level of privilege. Um because yeah, it, it is actually quite a privileged act to go and put yourself in a dangerous situation for fun. Most definitely. I that the entertainment I think the entertainment factor for you know, people who, you know, if we think about the 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 viewers and what, what kind of pleasure a viewer might get from watching an, ex, an extreme adventure or reading an extreme adventure, that sometimes the pleasure can also be, particularly if it's a fail, it's like, I'm so much smarter than these folks, <laughs> right? I'm not doing these crazy activities, uh, but most definitely. And, and that's uh, an element where perhaps some of my own like personal ambivalent, what I end up being a bit ambivalent about the adrenaline narrative in terms of its long-term, I think has to do with, with, with just that, uh, that, that the element of risk and how risk is disproportionately affects women, ethnic and racial minorities, and also, I think we could also turn it and think about the ways in which it may be a, a particularly undue pressure on other, on men, perhaps more than women in some situations in order to prove a particular kind of manhood, uh, to prove strength and virility. That, mm -hmm. again, I think this is uh, one of the aspects that ecofeminism and feminism more broadly are concerned with in terms of how those gendered and raced and class roles uh, shape our identities. And we can recognize both the advantages that it can offer for, for certain populations, but then also why changing the narrative can actually be powerful for everyone. And it's not about there's only so much power here and privilege uh, for everyone. And, uh, you know, it's all about just trying to grab your slice of the pie. As I, I, I'm the, I, the one I keep in my in my mind as we're talking through this stuff. The one I'm I'm always picturing in my head because it's it's really the only one I'm 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 most familiar with is that um, the documentary from a couple of years ago, Free Solo, of right, which is I mean just it it really is just checking off all of these different boxes about this um, you know this different right. He he has this kind of I think he you know he lives he basically lives out of a really small like van slash camper thing right and so it's this kind of perception of um of of poverty or that i'm not you know not spending a lot of money but as Gemma pointed out right i mean the 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 financial uh uh investment of of you know all of this stuff is is certainly large and huge and, and the equipment and, and all those things mm -hmm. um and so it makes me think of of a lot of like 
again, kind of going back to this, this kind of rugged individualistic mythology um, of, of these kind of, you know, self-made, uh, self-made men, self-made millionaires, self-made, uh, you know, kind of heroes in, in our country of, um, you know, that they, they, again, they, they struggled through poverty and, and made it through and, and look at what they became. <laughs> you can do this too. Um, even though, you know, we're not really taking into consideration all of the, the benefits they had as a straight white male, as a right able-bodied, all those different things that, um, while maybe not financially stable, they certainly had other advantages that, that others had. It's the, you know, it's the bootstrap narrative. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I think is still really popular today. Right. It we, is. We, and we, I mean, cause, yeah. Cause yeah. that, 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 I mean, didn't it win the Academy Award that year? I can't remember. I, I know it, it was nominated. Yes. I believe it did for and its so, category in documentary. Yeah. And documentary. Yeah. And it's, and it, it is a fascinating movie. I mean, I will, my, my, I mean, my palms are sweating a little bit just thinking about some of the stuff in that movie, but it, it's one of those ones when you kind of step away from it. Uh, and maybe actually is that, is that, is there a component of that in your, uh, in your work where maybe like, um, you know, we get wrapped up ourselves as readers, as viewers in the adrenaline of it. Um, does that kind of disconnect us at all from maybe some of these underlying problems with with the stories in terms of of their environmentalism or their, um, you know, the toxic masculinity inherent in them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that when the, the adventurers themselves, I think, are doing more now and whether or not we want to say it's greenwashing or if it's a expression of their intense environmental right because the, they'll talk about this deep connection to the environment and they're often doing many of the you know their Alex Honnold is of I, I know he's vegetarian I think he's also a vegan right and part of that is you know conscious for uh, the environmental impact and I think he talks mm -hmm. a bit about how he you know his lifestyle is pared down and that's also a, an environmental choice it's a lifestyle choice that allows him to do what he does so it's but you know he he also right is in a position where he's one of these uh these elite athletes that also it gets a lot of sponsorship and mm -hmm. it can there's uh, some of the uh jimmy chin who i think is the one of the directors or producers of Free Slow Load also talks about with some of the other um, people who the cameramen and women, uh, the other folks who worked on about the pressure that extreme athletes may feel to keep right to keep their position right means also to increase risk, which can obviously then increase their chances of getting seriously injured or dying. And so, uh, the that aspect of the of the risk is, uh, you know, it's, I guess it does. It takes. It, it can be a way of distracting us a little bit from the other, as you were saying, the other elements that play a role into terms of why is Alex Hunold in this position? It's not only because he's a fabulously talented. Uh, 
athlete. Uh, I think he's also interesting. Uh, I talk about an article that I read, a critique of him that talks about Mm -hmm. him as a kind of Peter Pan. In some ways, I think uh, John Krakauer and how he presents his heroic masculinity in Into uh, Thin Air uh, and Alex Honnold kind of start to hint at the ways in which particularly white masculinity, this heroic, athletic, uh, rugged individualism, they're both embracing it and yet they also aren't quite fully comfortable in that role that they're they're mm-hmm. um and i and and i think that this is a way to of negotiating the uh the appeal right the long-term appeal and how it taps into these american ideals and myths at the same time we it may indicate a turning point or it may be a kind of I guess greenwashing, or I don't know what the equivalent would be here for <laughs> heroic masculinity, but uh, you know, where you're you're able to embody it and yet sort of say, "But I'm not," you know, "I'm a good guy," kind of. Uh, mm. One thing about Alex Honnold, though, like I'm, I can't remember the details properly offhand, but I'm sure they've done like brain scans on him and he's actually neurally diverse and doesn't experience mm-hmm. danger and fear in the same way as the rest of us so it's you know hmm. he he might be yeah. kind of championed as this like ideal like heroic <laughs> brave person but at the same time he's not actually experiencing the danger that's there in the same way that many of us might so it's kind of a, a false idol um yeah and, there, and I think I think there is some or the science isn't necessarily clear on whether he's trained his brain to be this way or whether his you know, he was born this way, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, okay. and that he he has this difference. Uh, I don't think the science is completely uh, but completely clear on on that. And certainly, right. You know, there we, we see to greater or lesser degrees, there are people who are risk takers and there are people who are more cautious. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I also think how that gets framed, and again, I think we can see this uh, playing out in a slightly different form in the way that risk is contextualized and uh, the narrative of risk in the pandemic, uh, as well as that there's a kind of, and with, I would say, climate change, and then the way in which risk gets played out and told as a story in adrenaline narratives. Mm -hmm. We are um, getting towards time, but before we kind of start Mm. to wrap up, I'd love to just change tack a little bit and, and, and get you to maybe talk about a specific example from the book. Um, I'd really love to hear uh, a little passage from from one of these these narratives. If you can read us something and maybe talk about it a little bit. Sure. So I'll read. Since we've been talking about conquering nature, so I'll read a passage <laughs> from uh, that, which uh, it's from uh, Gregory Crouch's mountaineering memoir, Enduring Patagonia, which was published in two thousand one. And just prior to this passage that I'm about to read, I discuss how enduring Patagonia provide or objectifies nature by describing a conquering quote virgin stone end quote and describing Patagonia as this undiscovered country 
where Crouch, the mountaineer and uh, author, can return in order to discover and rediscover himself. And in this passage, I'm looking, or uh, I think what's interesting about it is the way in which nature is feminized in kind of two ways. So uh, this uh, for anyone who's following along, it's on page 64 in the book, or if you want to look at it later. <laughs> uh, so a dichotomous representation of feminized nature as both pure and sinister appears early in Crouch's book. So here's the quotation. The Torre emerges from the storm like an enraged angel, sheathed from head to toe in an armor of shimmering rime ice. Clouds swirl around the peak and afford us brief glimpses of the summit. She looks so evil. Her rewards are elusive and distant. The gauntlet of fear and suffering, ever-present and agonizing. Whenever the Torre comes out of her cauldron of cloud and wind, we launch a frenzy of backpack stuffing and last-minute eating, choke down a final cup of coffee, and march like lemmings towards her remote, her remote fortress, begging for punishment. It is the most extraordinary case of unrequited love. And that's the end of the quotation. So I write in uh, after this that the above, the passage feminizes nature as sadistic, uh, withholding lover, and the passage builds by these contrasts. It opens with an angry angel, transforms to transforms the angel to a warrior encased in shimmering armor, and then explicitly genders the summit as an evil female lover that refuses her suitors. So feminized nature is a mythic god or demon-like entity in its simultaneous embodiment of angelic and cruel characteristics. So, and then I talk a little bit, you know, Crouch, I, I, uh, I, I find his narrative fascinating because he not only, he genders in this passage nature feminine, but in other parts he gen or genders the Patagonian landscape as masculine. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Lord of Patagonia, briefly uh, negligent, was now violently awake, end quote. The, so Patagonia is both a violently awake ruler, which is similar, I think, to the enraged angel. However, rather than purity, this description contrasts the Lord's violent attention uh, as opposed to this sort of neglectful, disinterested uh, lover that is present in the more feminized uh, example. When when is the Crouch book from? What what year is it? Oh, two thousand one. Okay, it has. I mean, it's it's kind of uncomfortable. It you know, it's like <laughs> a, a a woman saying no, but we're going to go and take her anyway. Is pretty much the undertone. It sounds like Renaissance poetry or something <laughs> <laughs> well and i think that these like these sort of stereotyped overblown sort of hyperbolic uh descriptions of nature are you know we don't see them in every ad adrenaline narrative but they're still common enough that i think that this is this is a narrative that uh, someone else coined the term adventure porn. And this mm. is a, a way, so if you think of an image that's this beautiful, you know, if you think of like the beautiful mountains and there's no people in it, and it gives you this sense of sort of this uh, wilderness that's gorgeous, not unlike uh, other forms of 
pornography that have been airbrushed and sort of provide this idealized view. And so here, I think we get this um, uh, kind of untouchable uh, beauty, and yet the adventurer, right, is going to try and make his case. Uh, and the the thinking about this rhetoric, and I think, uh, Gemma, maybe this is what you're getting at in the age of consent, <laughs> is... And in ways that, you know, a, a mountain isn't going to be able to give consent in the same way that a woman is. And so part of that uh, language, and it's deployed in, you know, in this case, we're looking at example from a male writer and it's, but we see this in female writers as well, where they're presenting nature as this, uh, although not so often in the same sort of sexualized terms um, that we see uh, probably most famously, uh, too, in Into, Into the Wild, Krakauer uses a kind of sexualized image to talk about exploration in nature. This has been extremely fascinating. I have like a million and a half more questions oh. um, that, that I, would, I would love to get into, but uh, it is time to uh, end on a roll. So I've got a 12-sided die here, and we've got 12 questions. Whichever question comes up, we're going to uh, ask you. So we got eleven. All right. So this is actually this is I'm I'm like I'm liking this question. What's one fun piece of trivia about you? <laughs> I went. To, I grew up in a very small town in Wisconsin, and so my graduating class was twenty, which I wow. think is pretty still pretty unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I know my wife had a pretty. I don't know if hers was that small though. But oh, I know she went to a, a small. pretty small high school. Yeah, well. where's yeah. she from? Uh, Central Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that is foreign to me because I think we had a like 230 or something at least in my graduating class, and the nearby town had. They were known to have. I think they had like a thousand students. They were like one of the largest schools in the state. It was. It's crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kristin. Um, is there any way that our listeners can find out more about you or your work? Do you have any social media or website or anything like that you want to give people? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Dr. KJ at DRKJ. And from there, you can link to my website and you know find uh, other things about me. So Follow me on Twitter, please. Thanks. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and for everyone listening, if you've enjoyed the show, please help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review. And we are, of course, always open to your feedback. Yeah. And of course, if you have ideas for episodes or you would like to be featured, you want us to reach out to have somebody on the show, please don't hesitate to send us an email. Uh, we are asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast. Thanks for listening. So we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.